Let's start with our motivation. So really have uh, an expansive attitude, thinking of all of space, how vast the universe is, and how many sentient beings there are. That all these stars we look at are actually enormous, and there's so many things out in the universe that we have no idea exist, and there could be all sorts of life forms, all sorts of sentient beings in all sorts of realms, in the six realms, and each one of them wants be happy and to not suffer as intensely as we do. And just expand your mind to the vastness of the universe and then include all those sentient beings and think of how they're exactly like you. So since we're all alike in wanting happiness, not wanting suffering, we can't really say, I'm more important than others. Or that what I'm going through is more painful than what others are going through. So instead of making this differentiation between self and others, try and think happiness in whatever form it comes in. Happiness is something to uh, create, to cultivate, no matter whose it is. And suffering is something to get rid of no matter whose it is. And remember that when you're doing this, that wishing others happiness doesn't mean that we're wishing that they get everything they want. Because sometimes what sentient beings want actually brings them suffering. So we have to have a big mind when we are wishing others happiness, not a small mind. And then let's recall our potential to become fully awakened. And an awareness that there's a, a path that we can follow and practice that leads us to full awakening. 
and that following that path for the benefit of all beings so we can be of more effective service to them. There's something highly meaningful in our lives. Especially since it's so incredibly difficult to receive a precious human life. Let's make that our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. Emphasizing this this big mind of including all sentient beings is because it it takes us out of ourself. It puts our things in perspective. And also emphasizing that when we're wishing for others to be ha- have happiness, it's very important that we understand well what happiness means. Because otherwise we wind up getting quite confused in what we're wishing sentient beings, okay? So, of course, we wish that they have food and clothing and friends and shelter and things like that. But we don't stop there, because just wishing sentient beings to have that stuff doesn't solve their basic problem, which is that they get born again and again in samsara. It's a band-aid. It's, it's good to have band-aids. People suffer tremendously on that level, but it doesn't solve the basic, the fundamental problem. And also, you know, if we just think of wishing happiness, uh, happiness for the uh, sentient beings have the happiness of this life, and may all their wishes be fulfilled without qualifying it by virtuous wishes, then somebody could say, oh, I'm wishing that ISIS has all its wishes fulfilled and that there will be an Islamic caliphate uh, in the world. You know, I'm wishing that all the ISIS warriors, you know, that they win all of their battles. I'm wishing that um, all the countries who want to develop nuclear weapons are successful in doing that, you know, because I'm wishing sentient beings to have what they want. Is that what it means to wish sentient beings happiness? (laughs) No. Okay? Because, you know, very often, and said, what sentient beings want is not what's good for them. It's what creates so many problems. So we're not wishing that all alcoholics have as much booze as they ever want, 
and all dope fiends have as much dope as they want so that they never have to go through withdrawal. You know, we're not wishing that all bank robbers and murderers and people with grudges are successful in their actions so that their wishes are fulfilled, you know. So we really have to think clearly because otherwise we would get quite confused, you know. So, you know, we have to think that sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness, and especially the causes of happiness. And then to remember that the causes of happiness are not nuclear weapons and dope and buying an election and all this stuff, okay? That the causes of happiness are virtuous states of mind, you know, states of mind that are free of attachment, free of anger, free of confusion. And to really wish that sentient beings have those states of mind so that they create good karma, and then that good karma results in them having happiness while they're in samsara. But especially to wish that they create the causes to meet the Dharma and be able to practice the Dharma. And then to to gain the Dharma realizations and to wish that for sentient beings so that they can have genuine happiness, not just a lot of band-aids. Okay? So, you know, we really have to, to, to think well about this. Because otherwise, you know, you go somewhere and you start to teach the meditation on loving kindness and someone's going to raise their hand and say, well, I can't wish ISIS happiness, you know. Are you t- <laughs> I don't want them to be successful in all their wars. Or I don't want Assad to win the war, but that's what's going to make him happy. I don't want the, the Taliban to, to win the war and govern here Afghanistan and, you know, kind of put their, their thing on other people. That doesn't make them happy. But you said to wish all these people have their wishes fulfilled and that they're happy, and that would make the Taliban very happy, but it sure would make a lot of other people miserable. So you have to be able to answer that question if somebody asks you. Instead of going, blah, 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 <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay? Okay, so when we think of happiness, you know, we really have to think hard. What does happiness mean? What exactly is it that we're wishing for sending beings? And what's the cause of it? And how can we really wish it for others when sentient beings have different things in this world that make them happy? Yeah, so considering they have different things that make them happy, what does it mean to wish them happiness? Okay. So, good to, to meditate on this a bit, I think. Okay. So we'll come back to our text, the Gomchen Lam Rim.
show, if you remember, it had three basic outlines. Yeah, the the author and the greatness of the text. It had four basic outlines: the author, the greatness of the text, which we covered last time. The third one is how to teach and listen to the to the text. And the fourth are the stages of the path of practice. Okay, so last time we t- we talked about um, you know the greatness of well, I talked very briefly about the greatness of the author, you know, and then more about the uh, the greatness of the text. Okay, and so now we're going to to start about how to teach and how to listen. So actually how to listen uh, comes first, and then how to explain it. And then the third outline, how to conclude. Okay? So the first one about um, how to to listen to the teachings when we're on the receiving side. So, um, yeah, so that has different outlines. So what the first outline is contemplating the benefits of hearing the teachings. Okay, so they, it begins with a quote from the um, one of the Jataka tales. Okay, a verse that says, "Whoever hears this will have their mind filled with faith. They will delight in spiritual practice and be stable in it." Their wisdom will grow and their ignorance will be dispelled. It would be worth buying even with your own flesh. Okay. So hearing the teachings, it has it you know, if you're able to listen properly, then your mind fills with faith. So faith doesn't mean blind faith. It means faith that comes up from understanding. Yeah, from understanding the teachings, seeing the value of the teachings, appreciating the teachings. And then your mind is filled with this very joyful feeling of, um, of great trust and confidence in the teachings. So it's a very uh, happy state of mind that really builds, um, it gives us a sense of stability, you know, because we, we really see the qualities of the teachings and how they lead us to happiness and then it's like such a relief to have found a path that actually works and that leads to happiness and that people have been practicing for 2500 years and receive the results of you know so it's not Joe Blow making something up and, and running an ad in the New Age newspaper, <laughs> okay? But it's really something that's tried and true and that, you know, we can think about. We're encouraged to think about it and understand it. We're not encouraged to turn off our, our intelligence and just surrender and believe. We're, in, we're encouraged to use our intelligence. We're encouraged to try the teachings and see if they work. And then when we have some experience that they work, that really, you know, gives us very strong faith because it's based on our own experience. So it's something we can trust. 
Now, so that's one benefit of listening to the teachings. Another, they will delight in spiritual practice and be stable in it. So, you know, based on having that faith and trust and confidence in the teachings, then we want to practice and we're, we become stable in our practice. So, you know, lots of us are, are yo-yos in our practice. Yeah, we get these big boosts of energy and whoo! And, you know, I do, you know, a thousand frustrations and then I'm tuckered out, you know, let's sit back, you know, put my feet up, turn on the TV and have a chocolate donut. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then, you know, Dharma practice out the window. You know? And then after a few days of eating chocolate donuts, we feel sick to our stomach. And then we think, oh, maybe I should prostrate again to, you know, get rid of this extra fat that I've put on. You know, not the right reason for doing prostrations. But, um, yeah, so we, when we really hear the teachings and take them into our heart, and have, you know, that trust that comes from understanding and that comes from experience, then our practice gets stable. Okay? Sometimes to make our practice stable, we need a little bit of self-discipline. Or a lot of self-discipline. <laughs> okay, so that's the benefit of living in a community because when the bell rings, everybody gets up at the same time and everybody goes in the hall at the same time. And, you know, and if you're not there, somebody's going to come check on you and make sure you're not sick. Yeah. And so it becomes easier to practice because that's what everybody else is doing. Now, when you're on your own, it requires really much more self-discipline. You have to get yourself out of bed into the cushion, okay? Unless you're lucky to have a cat who wakes you up. But then you have to teach the cat to not wake you up at, to, you know, to wake you up at five instead of at two. Yeah. Okay? So we, get, we become stable in our practice. And then our practice really becomes part of our day and part of our life. And we, we don't miss it because, you know, in the same way that we nourish our, our body every day by eating, you know, our meals, then we nourish our heart every day by doing our practice. So it just becomes what we do. Yeah. And I must say that sometimes... Uh, we feel like, I'm just doing this practice, I'm just reciting words, I'm not really getting anywhere, what's the use? You know, sometimes we, we just feel like that. And then you say, well, maybe I'll just stop, because what I'm doing isn't real practice, it's just blah, blah. Okay? So I remember thinking that at one part point, and thinking, you know, I mean, I, I knew I wouldn't stop, but just playing with that idea and thinking, well, what would happen if instead of getting up in the morning and practicing, I got up and just started my day? You know? Turned on the computer, got up, turned on the computer, and started working. What would that be like? And then I thought, 
I would be completely unprepared to for the day. You know? To like wake up and start with email. Oh god. <laughs> no. It's like, no, I would be totally unprepared for the day and I would be horrible to live with. And that's when I realized that even though I felt I wasn't getting anywhere in my practice, my practice was actually sustaining me. Just the fact of doing it every day made the rest of the day something, you know, bearable. So to speak, yeah. And then I also began to see that you know the mind that that thinks like that. Oh, it's just blah blah. Maybe I should stop. That mind is seeking peak experiences. Yeah, it's a mind that is attached to wowie kazowie. <laughs> yeah, every morning I want to sit down and go into bliss and empty whatever it is. And to, to say, you know, that's, that's like a drug addict's mind. You know, the drug addict always wants to have a high. Yeah. So I'm just wanting a high every morning. So that's not really the right motivation for doing my practice. And anyway, those meditations that you have where like something clicks and it really goes in your heart and you go, Oh yeah, that's really true. And you put down something big. That only happens because you've gone through how many times of just doing the meditation and not having a strong experience. But all those times of just doing it, it's like drops in the bucket and then one day it clicks. But it's not going to click the first time you do it. And it's not going to click if you don't keep putting those drops in the bucket. Yeah? And so then you just say, okay, I've got to be content to create the cause. I will be stable in creating the cause. And simply by the creating the cause, doing the best I can, even though it's not fantastic, you know? my life will be better and slowly the mind will transform. Yeah. And so then your mind becomes much more stable instead of, you know, sitting down and like, am I going to get hit by the bolt of lightning? You know? Am I, that hair on my arm is going to stand on end? You know, because because you hear all these things in the scriptures. You know. I remember one time there was a course for new people, and you know, one person came after uh, talked to me afterwards, and you know, one of my teachers had come in, and she said, he walked in the room, and the hair on my arm stood at, on end, and I just felt bliss, you know, and I want to ordain. <laughs> And I was with, you know, Venerable Lekshay and a few others, and we said, oh, that's nice, just, you know, calm down. <laughs> Do your practice, listen to the teachings. Yeah, we know Genla's a wonderful teacher, but, you know, you're not going to have that same feeling every time he walks in the room. So just 
Focus on the teachings, do your practice. You'll get ordained when you're ready. You know? So, no, I want to get ordained now. So this is what we call ordination fever. Yeah. Now, now. And Venerable Lekshe and Venerable Champ and I are like, no, cool. <laughs> and, uh, and then years later, I was in Montana, uh, and she came to the teaching, and she said, thank you very much for what you told me years ago. <laughs> Even though at that time she was really mad at us. Yeah, as we weren't telling her what she wanted to hear. Anyway, if you hear teachings, listen to teachings repeatedly and think about them, your practice becomes stable. Another benefit, wisdom will grow and your ignorance will be dispelled. So that's a really nice benefit, isn't it? Yeah. When your conventional wisdom grows, so you understand cause and effect better, you can see situations clearer and make good decisions based on, on virtue. Yeah, and then also your wisdom of the ultimate truth gets clearer, so your mind gets much less confused, you know, with attachment and anger and so on. Yeah, so wisdom will grow and, and ignorance will be dispelled. And then the last line of the verse, it would be worth buying even with your own flesh. In other words, the Dharma is more important than our body. You're going to go, what? <laughs> he made the Dharma's part more. My body is me. Without this body, who am I? I? You know, I'll give up the Dharma first, but not this body. But think about it. In the big picture, long term, yeah. What is this body? Yeah, it's basically recycled dirt, isn't it? Because it's made from the food, and where did the food come from? Go out and look in the garden. The dirt is growing and transforming into melons and beans, and you know the dirt transforms into a lot of different things. And then that stuff transforms into this thing. Yeah. So what's more important to you, you know, in the long term, for your long well term well-being? Recycled string beans? <laughs> yeah, that's what we ate for lunch. Recycled string beans, uh, tofu skin, cheese and salad, or the dharma? What's going to benefit you more? Yeah, it becomes very clear, doesn't it? Yeah, this, this, these recycled, this thing made of recycled string beans is not going to lead me to enlightenment. The Dharma is, a, you know, a reliable refuge. It sounds funny, but really, isn't it true? Isn't that what our body is? Yeah, I mean, we think this body's so crazy, this is special. You know, it's recycled tofu skin. <laughs> yeah, recycled salad dress. 
So, you know, we have to you know, get our priorities straight here. It's just, yeah, it's recycled dirt. And one day, we have to separate from it and go on to our next life. And what's going to be a benefit to us at that time? This body will be of zero benefit to us at the time we die. Zero. It does not come with us. It's going to be pain. This body's going to be the source of pain. Yeah. It's going to be the object of attachment if we're not careful. So what's really going to help us at the time of death? The Dharma, isn't it? Time of death, the Dharma is what's going to help us. You know? And that's going to be the cumulative effect of the, you know, the, the virtue that we've created during our entire life and the habits, the mental habits we have, the wisdom and compassion we've gained. That's what's really going to benefit us. Yeah. You think you're lying on your deathbed and then... <laughs> You're going to put stream beams all around you. <laughs> and tofu skin and scatter some salad. And that's going to benefit you at the time of death. <laughs> you know, mix in a little watermelon, yeah, and applesauce. <laughs> it's not going to help us. Okay. And then the second outline of you know, how to listen to the teachings, is generating respect for the teaching and for the teachers. So the text says, while listening to the teaching with one-pointed faith and and veneration, free of pride and scorn for the teaching and the teachers, um, perform service and such and being, see this is what I mean, the grammar isn't very good here, performing services and such, and being respectful, consider the teachers as you do the Buddha. Okay, so it's, there's three clauses here about, you know, so the first one is while listening to the teaching with one-pointed faith and veneration, free of pride and scorn for the teaching and the teachers. Okay, so... One-pointed faith, that happy mind that is really confident in the teachings. And veneration, you know, really like, um, really seeing how precious the teachings are. Yeah, really with some sense of like this is extraordinary, these teachings are extraordinary and how amazingly fortunate I am to be able to sit here and listen. Yeah. And when I go to His Holiness's teachings, you know, the first teaching, this is how I always feel, you know. Actually, throughout the thing, it's like, wow, how did I get to be here? Because yeah? these teachings are very special. So to have that, that feeling. And then be free of arrogance. We're not sitting in the teaching saying, well, I'm a very good practitioner. Let's see if this teaching meets the standard of what I'm ready to practice. 
or I've heard this teaching before, so I'm going to see if the teacher teaches it correctly or not. Yeah, that kind of arrogant mind, you know, or I'm the best disciple, yeah, of all the thousands here, so I know that, you know, the teacher's directing it especially to me. Yeah. So free of that kind of me, I, my, and mine, okay, that kind of conceit. And free of scorn for the teaching, you know, so not looking at the teachings. This is elementary stuff, you know? They're teaching precious human life. How many times have I heard that? Yes, I know the eight freedoms. Yes, I know the ten. Oh, the ten fortunes. This is so boring. Why don't they teach something interesting this time? You know, this is kind of baby stuff. Okay, so without that scorn, for the teachings, deprecating the teachings. Yeah. So you can see that, you know, how it's, it's easy for some kind of arrogance or, you know, to come in there. So without that, you know, listening to teachings in that way. Yeah. And then another thing, you know, while performing services, so while helping the, the teacher helping the teaching, maybe you have to put together the text beforehand or arrange the room or help the teacher in some way, okay? And with a mind that's being respectful towards the teaching and towards the teacher, yeah? So it doesn't mean you have to look at the teacher like, You know, not like that kind of, not like you're seeing a rock star, <laughs> okay? But, um, you know, with, with respect for the teacher, not having this mind of, you know, either, you know, our, our, we, our racism comes in both ways. Either they grew up in Tibet, this backward country, what do they know? You know, they're going to teach me some Tibetan trip, thing that has no relevance to my life. So that's one way of being disrespectful to the teaching and the teacher. Another way is, well, this teacher is Western. They grew up with Mickey Mouse just like me. What do they know? What can they teach me? Okay? Just so do you see how we, our racism can go one way or the other? You know, putting one down because they're different, putting the one down because they're the same as us. Okay? So, you know, neither of those attitudes are very helpful. Because, you know, if we don't respect the teacher, if we don't respect the teaching, then we don't listen well. You know, our mind listens with just a mind of criticism. Yeah? And when you're listening with a mind of criticism, then how's that going to help you? You're not going to learn anything. Okay, and so listening in that kind of way and performing services. Then it says, consider the teachings as you do the Buddha. So what this means, the way I think it's good for us to understand this, is when you're hearing the teachings, think, if the Buddha were here in this room teaching me, he would not be saying anything different from what my teacher is saying. Okay, 
So looking at it that way, like, you know, this, this is not kind of Mickey Mouse teaching it or some old kind of, you know, old-fashioned Tibetan somebody teaching it. But if the Buddha were here, he would be teaching me the exact same thing. So this is, this is something important, you know. I should really take it to heart and really listen and think about it. Okay? So that's generating respect for the teaching and for the teachers. And, you know, respect again for the, for the teachers. You know, sometimes we may be unhappy with our teacher. Here's my teacher teaching me this, but I asked for a private appointment and their attendant wouldn't let me in and I'm always getting rejected from the private appointments. Yeah, I had a problem with this before. All this kind of stuff, yeah? If you have that in your mind, then again you can't listen to the teaching because you're thinking, Uh, I'm not getting what I want, you know. I have my emotional needs and my teacher's not fulfilling them. And you're stuck in that kind of mind. So that's not going to get us anywhere either. My teacher doesn't look at me. My teacher doesn't answer my questions. They always answer other people's questions. I remember one time in France, Geshe Tekshok was teaching. I used to sit like right in front. And I always had gazillions of questions. Geshe La, how can you say that? That doesn't make any sense. And then Venerable Steve, he, he and I would team up against Geshe La. Steve would say, yeah, you know, this and this and this. We'd present our argument to Geshe And then there came, there came a time when Geshe La would just not look at me. He'd look at the room. And I'm like this, <laughs> sitting right in front. I'm just looking, yeah. Anybody have any questions? <laughs> oh, yes, you over there? Yeah, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Wouldn't look at me. Another time, it was really hilarious. I was with um, Alex in uh, Dharamsala, and we were, uh, I forget what we were doing, but somehow we bumped into uh, Zopa Rinpoche in Dharamsala, and so we invited him to tea. And Rinpoche starts talking to Alex, completely does not even look at me. From the moment we met him in the street and invited him, did not talk to me, did not look at me. We went out to tea, talked the whole time to Alex. Even Alex said to me at the end, did you notice he didn't pay any attention? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Alex, I noticed that. (laughs) But by that time, I was a little bit more used to it. You know, it was like, okay, I know what's going on here. I'll, you know, I'll just keep my mouth shut and I'll listen to their conversation and I'll learn something from listening. Yeah, but it was really funny. Completely. Like, as if I were invisible. But why did he do that for? 
Why did he do that? Who knows? But, yeah, but it was a good teaching for me in terms of, you know, the mind that says, but what about me? You know, and, you know because this had happened, and to watch that that particular time, I was able to be much more peaceful about it. You know, the, before I was always like, <laughs> you know, and that time, really, I mean, I just said, okay, and then, you know, I, I listened to their conversation. I just, like what I said, I listened and I learned from their conversation. Yeah, and that was good enough. That was okay. Yeah, I mean, why do I need to always be the one that's the object of attention? Yeah, Yeah. he does that a lot. (laughs) Okay, Uh, then um, uh, the next outline is how to actually listen. So uh, that has two sub-outlines, relying on the six recognitions and removing three faults similar to a vessel's. It's strange English. So generating the recognitions, okay. So there's one sutra called the Re- Sutra Requested by Sagaramati, and the first five uh, recognitions come from that one, and then somehow the, second, the sixth one is like a dedication. So this, this is, is very good, you know, these six are, are really good and this is how we should listen to the teachings, okay? So to see ourselves as a sick person. Yeah. So that's the opposite of coming into the teachings and like, pay attention to me, look at me, answer my questions, I'm here, you know. This is, you know, you're, to realize I'm a sick person, yeah? I'm sick with delusions, with afflictions, you know, chock-a-block full of destructive karma. Uh, And I'm suffering in samsara. So I need help. Yeah. So when there's the recognition that we're a sick person, we come in with, I need help. Instead of, I need help. You know? (laughs) Okay. And then seeing the teacher is the doctor. Yeah. So it could be your teacher, could be the Buddha as the doctor. No, as the one who can diagnose our illness, who, who can cure us. How do they cure us? By prescribing the medicine. Yeah. What's the medicine? The Dharma. Okay. Just seeing the te- ourselves as the patient, the sick person, teacher and the Buddha as the doctors, the Dharma as the medicine. Yeah. And then taking the medicine as the cure. Yeah. Applying the teaching as the cure. So not just getting the prescription, going to the drugstore, buying the bottle, putting it on your nightstand, and then leaving it there without opening it and taking the pills. Okay? But seeing the, you know, 
seeing the teaching as the medicine and that taking that medicine is what's going to cure you. So that means from our side, there's some commitment to putting the teachings into practice. That we're not just sitting here, you know, okay, what do they have to say for themselves? But, you know, I'm a sick person and I need some medicine and I'm going to take that medicine. Okay, and then the fifth one, seeing the Tathagatas as superior beings, you know, so really seeing that the, the Buddha is the fully awakened one. And like I said, this is not a teaching from, you know, Jim Jones who is going to, you know, tell us to commit mass suicide. It's not a teaching from, uh, you know, who else is there? Oh, uh, Rajneesh, remember? Yeah. Rajneesh, yeah, and they're all doing these weird things and then collecting guns. So it, it's, you know, it's a teaching that's really been tried and true. And so we respect the Buddha, the Tathagata. And then with that kind of mind, you know, listening, taking the medicine and so on, then really having a strong aspiration that the teaching exists forever, that the teaching remains forever. And seeing that the teaching remaining forever has to do with my listening and practicing it. You know, We may not be lineage holders, but, you know, the, we have some responsibility for listening, taking the teachings into our heart, practicing them, and getting the correct understanding, transforming our mind, and then sharing them with others. Okay, so that, isn't that beautiful? I always like the, this part here. It's, uh, it's quite beautiful. And then also, you know, when we're actually listening, then we have to remove three faults that are similar to a faulty pot. Okay, so the first pot is upside down. So you have this beautiful oregano juice. Are you sure it wasn't mint? Do we have some more? More oregano or mint? Huh? <laughs> Juice. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I want to taste it. So, you have this marvelous nectar, but the bowl's upside down, so you pour it. And where does this nectar go? All over the floor. Okay? Nothing goes in the bowl because the bowl's upside down. So that's like our mind when we are not open and receptive to the teachings. You know, when we're tired and exhausted, so we're not listening properly. Yeah, so nothing's going in. Yeah, just totally, we're out to lunch. Yeah, somebody said, says, uh, you know, what, did the, what was the teaching about? I ask people sometimes, you know, well, what did that teacher teach? 
it's amazing when I travel, people, they will remember all sorts of cute little stories about the teacher, but they will not remember what the teaching was about. Yeah? So it makes me wonder, after I leave, what they say to other people. You know, nothing of what I, what I taught, but only cute little stories. You know, like, she likes chocolate. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay, so the mind that is not receptive to the Dharma, upside down. So, you know, we have to stay awake during the teachings. If you have a problem staying awake, do lots of prostrations. It helps purify the karma from disrespecting the teachings. That makes you fall asleep. It also gets your, your wind and your, you know, your body moving so you don't fall asleep. Um, get some exercise. Yeah, put cold water on your face and on your head before teachings you know, so you can stay awake. Okay, so that's one faulty vessel. Second one is it's turned right side up so that the nectar can go in, but there's a hole in the bottom. So whatever goes in, comes out. In one ear, out the other. <laughs> okay, so again, what did the teacher teach about? Long run. <laughs> yeah, because we, you know, we can't, nothing, we can't sustain anything. Yeah. Okay. So that also has to do. Yeah. The upside down ones we're not paying attention. The leaky one is we're paying attention, but we don't contemplate the teaching after we hear it. We don't review our notes. We take the notes, we put, close the book, you know, go and do something else. We don't reflect on what we heard. So it all gets drained out. Okay? Then the, the third fault of the pot is that it's dirty inside. So you may have this wonderful nectar in a beautiful pot that is filled with it's better to say kaka. You know what kaka is? Okay. So it's filled, or it's lined with kaka. Yeah. Encrusted with kaka. <laughs> so the nectar goes in, but it makes mixed up with the kaka. Okay. So that's like us listening with a rotten motivation. Yeah. I'm going to listen to this, these teachings so that I will know a lot and then I can teach other people and I can be a big shot. And I know teachings, and I teach them to other people, then other people will respect me and they'll give me stuff. Yeah. So totally rotten motivation. Or I'm listening to teachings so that I can be teacher's pet. Yeah? And I don't remember anything. All I'm doing is sitting there like, 
you know, again, look at me, look at me, I'm here at the teachings, isn't that wonderful? Or I can ask really intelligent questions. So some kind of rotten motivation, you know, polluting motivation. So we really have to be careful when we listen to teachings to to have a, a suitable motivation. So we always take the time to cultivate our motivation. Many teachers, you do the refuge and bodhicitta prayer that we chant, and they they think that while you're chanting that, you're not out to lunch, but you're actually developing a good motivation. So they don't articulate a special motivation, or they might do it the first teaching, but not the rest of it. But, you know, we have to remember when we're chanting that prayer that we're responsible for generating a good motivation. Yeah? With this third one, can that be that you have wrong views that you're holding on to and it kind of, you're mixing them with the teachings? Yeah, it could be that too. How would that work? Yeah. Well, I know better than the teacher. So I'm sitting here listening what this person has to say for themselves, but I know how it really is. So again, arrogance. The, the name of the sutra? It was Sagaramati. Sutra requested by Sagaramati. But th- that's not the three vessels, that was the five recognitions. Okay. So, uh, listen well and thoroughly and retain what you hear. In brief, bringing together the causes to achieve Buddhahood and recalling the benefits of learning. Listen with enthusiasm. Okay. So listen with enthusiasm. It's funny, sometimes when we go to teachings, we think that all we have to do is sit there and listen. Yeah? And then the teacher does all the work. Let me tell you that the kind of teaching you receive depends on how you listen to the teaching. Because it's a very interactive process. If you're sitting there in front of a group of students, You know, and the students are like that, that's going to affect the teacher. Yeah, you're going to get one kind of teaching. If the students are really listening and really taking it in, you're going to get another kind of teaching. If the students are sitting there, You're going to get another kind of teaching. Okay? So it's a very interactive process. Okay. So then, uh, then the Avon goes to how to explain the teaching. So contemplating the benefits of explaining the teaching, generating respect for the teacher and the teaching, for the Buddha and the teaching. 
with what state of mind and what behavior to teach, and differentiating between whom to teach and whom not to teach. Okay? So first, contemplating the benefits of explaining the teaching. So, you know, that not only the, the students contemplate the benefits of listening, but the teacher has to see the benefits of teaching. Because otherwise, you know, it's not like you automatically feel like teaching all the time. Sometimes you're tired, sometimes you're sick, sometimes, you know, you're who knows what, but you have to teach, so you have to think of the benefits of the teaching so that you, you know, enjoy doing it and you do it properly. So it says, um, reject consideration for gain, honors, and etc. Reject disturbed thinking and incorrect uh, explanations. Yeah. So rejecting all of those, teach as the Buddhas taught the sutras and so on. Then you will gain the countless benefits taught in the sutra requested by Agra and the ex exhortation to superior resolve. So I have the sutra requested by Agra, but I, and I checked to try and find the passages, but I didn't find them in the outline, and I didn't have time to go through the whole sutra to find them. Okay, but when you're teaching, to reject consideration for gain, honors, and so forth. So not to teach with this idea of like, let's see how many people are in the room, and if they each give ten dollars then this is how much I'll have at the end of it. Okay? So, not like that. Or not like, um, you know, okay, how many people in the room? There's a lot of new people. Hmm, I can put on a good show tonight. They'll think I'm a really good teacher. Yeah? Then they'll all talk to their friends and say, oh, I went to this marvelous teaching by so-and-so, you should come. Okay, show the mind, the, the self-centered mind that wants material gains and respect. Okay, so it's very, very important when you're teaching, leading meditations, leading a discussion group, anything to get rid of that kind of mind. And so, um, you'll notice yeah, that when, well, first of all, usually we'll chant that verse, a star mirage, a flame and a lamp, an illusion, a drop of dew, a bubble. That verse is all about impermanence. So the teacher, well, that is, is thinking, you know, I'm sitting on this seat for a short time. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. You know, there's nothing to get attached to here. So, you know, you remember impermanence. Also, when the teacher bows beforehand, they imagine the entire lineage, you know, uh, on the seat and, and above the seat. So you're bow bowing to this, to the entire lineage. Yeah. So if you're sitting there from the, all the lineage teachers, from J. Rinpoche, I mean, from the Buddha down to J. Rinpoche, down to your own teacher, if you really contemplate that, you're not going to be arrogant. Yeah, because you realize compared to them, you know, um, piddly, piddly, piddly. Piddly. Piddly, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
And then also, when the teacher sits down, they snap the fingers, you know? Again, a sign of impermanence. Yeah, like, this is just temporary. That's it. Okay? So you have to do that, so you get rid of that that mind that, that is looking for any kind of benefit for this, from this, for this life. Disturbed thinking, you know, and incorrect explanations. So you want to make sure before you lead a meditation, a discussion group, give a talk, that you know the material and that, you know, you are, you can give a correct explanation. Okay, uh, then teach as the Buddhas taught the sutras. So, how, you know, how did the Buddha teach the sutras? Yeah? Buddha taught the, the sutras. I mean, my goodness, Buddha taught the sutras. He was just telling us his own internal experience. Yeah? What's it like to be a Buddha? Read a sutra. Listen to a Dharma talk. They're telling you. So we may not have that internal experience, but, you know, we can certainly give as much as, as we understand ourselves. Okay? And then the benefits, you will gain the countless benefits taught, you know, in these sutras. So some of the, some of the benefits are uh, from teaching, is you learn the stuff better yourself. Yeah, because when you have to say it, you, you have to understand it, which means you have to think about it and you have to be able to put it in your own words. So it really helps your own education. Now, and that's the way my teachers trained a lot of us, you know, right from the get-go. Well, not right from the get-go, you know, but after a year or two, then starting to lead meditations. And I remember the first time I was asked to do something, I said, I don't know anything, I can't do this. Yeah. But that, that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the Buddha, how else did the Buddha teach? The Buddha taught with real care and affection for the people. Yeah. The Buddha didn't look at the audience and go, oh, these dimwits. <laughs> you know, what do they know? <laughs> the Buddha taught, you know, with real compassion and care and concern and wanting the best for the students. Yeah, so, so teach in, in that kind of way. Yeah, and then you get the benefits, you know, your own education. Yeah. And also, you have a tremendous opportunity to create merit. Yeah. For years, I resisted um, being in, in this position. Yeah. I didn't want to teach, but I, got, I kept getting put in this position, actually, from very early on. It started when uh, one of the, the teachers for course was sick, and I was the person who was ordained long enough at the center. I was only ordained two or three years at that point. And I was like, well, nobody else is here. You've got to teach him. Like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah? 
But, um, yeah. So, and then after that, I really, you know, it was like, I keep going to my teacher and say, you know, please, I want to do retreat, I want to get more experience with the teachings, you know, can't I do retreat? And my teachers would always say, oh, that's very nice, go teach. <laughs> you know? And it was always, but I don't know anything, why are they, you know? And so I really resisted it for quite the quite a long time, until it began to dawn on me that actually my teachers were giving me an amazing opportunity to create merit, totally an amazing opportunity, and an opportunity to repay the kindness of sentient beings, to actively repay the kindness of sentient beings. You know, not in an abstract way, but to, you know, really share the, do the best I can to share the teachings. So then I began to really see, yes, you know, I benefit from doing this too, and it's a great opportunity for me. And I develop much more understanding of what my teachers go through. <laughs> Okay. Then the second, generating respect for the teacher and for the teaching. So when he taught the, the, the conqueror's mother, that, meant, that means the Prajnaparamita Sutra. Yeah, the Prajnaparamita is called the mother of all the Buddhas. Okay, so when the Buddha taught the Prajnaparamita Sutras, uh, the guide, in other words, the Buddha, set up his own seat the teaching itself being the Buddha's object of veneration. Therefore, recalling the good qualities and the kindness of the teaching and the teacher generate veneration for them. So when the Buddha taught the Prajnaparamita Sutras, yeah, he set up his own seat because he had so much veneration for the Prajnaparamita. Yeah? So he made his own seat because the object of veneration was not himself as the teacher, it was the Prashnaparamita. So he made the seat. He was just the vehicle that it came through. So, you know, he made his own seat, spoke the Prashnaparamita. And so recalling the good qualities and the, you know, of the teaching and of the teacher and recalling the kindness of the teaching and the teacher. Then when you're teaching or, you know, leading discussion group or whatever, yeah, have respect for them, venerate them. Yeah. Really feel that this is, a, is an amazing privilege for me to even talk about something so precious as the Buddhist teachings. Considering what we've we usually talk about and how our speech is usually filled with all sorts of garbage. Yeah, like, wow, this is an amazing opportunity for me to talk about something worthwhile to people. Okay, with what state of mind and what behavior to teach? So the actual state of mind. Give up retaining information. I wonder if that's a correct translation. 
unless it means just retaining, seeing the Dharma as information instead of seeing it as something to practice. Okay? Give up bragging. I am such a fantastic teacher. You are so lucky to listen to me. Give up weariness with the teaching. Oh, I've taught this before. Why can't I teach something different? Yeah. Give up criticizing others. Anyway, these students don't get it. They're such dimwits. Or, I can teach so much better than these other people do. Yeah. Give up procrastination. Oh, I don't feel like teaching. They asked me to give refuge and precepts. Oh, God, you know. I just gave them, and then the next day they asked me again, why can't they get their act together? You know, we'll do it later. Manana. Manana, manana. Okay. And giving up jealousy. Like, oh God, they're going to hear this teacher from teaching from me, then they're going to go hear it from my teacher, and then they're going to know what awful teacher I am. Ooh, what's going to happen to me then? Yeah. Or, oh, you know, I'm giving this teaching. But they also go and they earn teachings by so-and-so, who really knows stuff much better than me. You know, so they're going to be comparing me to that teacher. And, you know, I'm not nearly as good. Or after they listen to me, they're going to go to that teacher. And they're going to speak better. So then they're going to become the disciple of that teacher instead of becoming my disciple. Or getting arrogant. Oh, they went to that teacher. I can give a better teaching. Then they'll all become my disciples, not that person, because I'm much better. Okay, so give up all that kind of rubbish. Can you probably also mean that you're teaching and you think, oh, there's the second mind, getting more knowledge, and, you know, kind of being jealous of the disciples. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, there's some really smart well-educated disciple in here, uh-oh. <laughs> when they hear me teach, they're going to see all the holes in what I'm saying. No, or thinking something like, oh, they might get more successful than I am, or whatever, when I'm teaching them. Oh, okay, I'm them. teaching them, yeah. and then they're going to go out and teach, they'll be more successful than me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so then you compete with your disciples, or you compete with your own teacher. So, cultivate love for your disciples and maintain the five recognitions. See the virtue of teaching correctly as the instrument of your own happiness. So, teaching correctly. Not teaching stuff you've made up yourself. Not teaching you know, well, you know, the sutra says this, but it actually means this. You know, when this is according to what I believe. <laughs> yeah? So give up giving wrong explanations. And that is really a responsibility. You know, lots of times people are so eager to teach. I want to set up a 
from the room and teach and be somebody. But it is such a responsibility because if you instruct the wrong thing, people remember it. Yeah. And then when they hear the correct explanation, they don't believe the correct explanation because they think, but I remember, you know, this teacher said blah, blah. Now this teacher's contradicting them and I'm confused. Okay. So it's, it's really a tremendous responsibility. It's, it's not something to be taken lightly. Okay, then your conduct when you teach. Prepare yourself well, wash, and so on. So don't come in directly from the forest in your dirty forest clothes, <laughs> all sweaty. Yeah. yeah. Once you are clean, <laughs> sit on the throne, on the Dharma seat and pronounce the profound dharani to this is a dharani that um, subjugates demons actually um, uh, you can do the something so it's not you can you know the tibetans often think of real demons you're dispelling but you're also dispelling wrong motivations in yourself and in the other person you know by reciting the, the Prashnaparamita mantra. Okay. So that's why I always, you know, at the beginning of the things, I always have silence because I have uh, the, the way I prepare my mind. I have these four things that I go through, yeah, and, and then I say the mantra and I prepare my mind that way. And so. I feel it's very important, you know, I can't just sit down and like give a teaching. Actually, it, it's better to, to not even think I'm a teacher giving a teaching. His Holiness always says, I'm just an older brother sharing with you what I know. Yeah? He doesn't say, oh, I'm a teacher. I'm just sharing you. Sharing with I mean, he's so humble. Okay, so to, to think that way. Okay, um, with a friendly demeanor, confident of the meaning and the examples, use abundant citations and arguments, and teach the excellent dharma. So, when you're giving talks, leading meditations, have a friendly demeanor. Yeah, and this is really important, you know. We, we may not be aware of how we look when we public speak. So it can be very helpful for some of you who are giving BBCs to look at your own BBCs, you know, and watch. Because sometimes you're giving a BBC and your eyes are down, you're giving this whole talk, not making eye contact with anybody. Or you're giving a talk looking at the ceiling. Yeah? Or you're giving a talk going, um, a lot. Or you know, a lot. Yeah? And we don't even realize we're doing it. So it's really quite interesting sometimes to, to watch the recordings. And it's like, oh, that's what I look like. 
Do I have a friendly demeanor? You know, can I make eye contact with the students? Or am I scowling? Or am I looking bored? Yeah. Okay, very good to, to see so that we get a feeling, you know, having a friendly demeanor, confident of the meaning and examples, so knowing the material and having thought about it so that we're confident in what we're teaching. We're not full of doubts ourselves. Although, it's very interesting, you know, when you watch Jeffrey teach, he's really thinking about the teaching when he's teaching it, you know? And he shares his thoughts and his doubts with us. So it's a way that he teaches that is showing us how to examine the teachings. Yeah, he's not teaching like, I know the answers. It's like, well, you know, it says this, but what do you think that means? Really good, he gets you to think. Okay. Yeah, then use abundant citations, so cite the different sutras and commentaries if you have them memorized. Give good arguments, you know, so arguments that make sense, not just blah, blah, full of contradictions, and teach the excellent dharma. And then differentiating between whom to teach and whom not to teach. Okay, so having been requested Teach those whose behavior is in accordance with the Vinaya when they listen. So we should be, people should ask us for the teachings. We don't go into a situation, hi, I'm a Dharma teacher, I'm going to teach you the Dharma. No, people should request. Yeah? And they should request earnestly. And they shouldn't just request like, you know, like the teacher's their servant. You know, I feel like listening to teaching, so please will you teach this text? You know, so the students should request respectfully and the teacher, you know, should wait until they request to, to really see if they're earnest. And so usually, the, you know, the request has to be three times. So teach those whose behavior is in accordance with the Vinaya. So in other words, people, when they come to teachings, they're sitting up straight. Yeah? They're listening respectfully. They're, their heads are uncovered. They're not flirting with the people sitting next to them. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. Yeah? So... Um, you know, people who are behaving properly. I've been in situations when you teach in India sometimes, because you're teaching all the, you know, young travelers who come through. Yeah. And so they come in and like, well, who are you? And they lie down in the teaching. Yeah. They lie on their side and prop their head up and look at you. And I've had to say to people, um, Please, could you sit up straight? It's distracting for me when people are lying down when, I, when I'm trying to give a talk. Or they're talking to each other. You know, you're giving a talk and they're talking to each other. 
or some couple are like making eyes at each other during the teaching or tickling each other. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, she, people have to listen properly. Yeah, not sitting there, you know, eating food while, you know, they have their food that they're eating. You know, like they're watching TV, popcorn. <laughs> you know, yeah. So not not like that. Yeah, the students are not sitting there just yawning and lawn, yawning loudly. You know, some people just yawn. Some people go, oh, <laughs> yeah, and they don't even realize that they're making noise. But you're trying to teach, and then somebody's going, oh. <laughs> yeah. Or they're sitting there, you know, tapping their fingers, or bouncing their leg. You know, they have all this nerve. You know, people bounce their leg like this, you know. <laughs> or they're tapping their fingers, you know. Or they're playing with their, with their mala beads. Yeah. Or they're kind of looking around, checking out who else is there. Yeah. So, you know, you should teach people who are listening properly. And it's, it's a challenge sometimes to teach them how to listen properly when they're not doing it at that time. Yeah? Uh, when I went to Idaho once, Jack and uh, John told a story about Ishiwandaka going there, uh -huh. and they did not start with prayers and didn't kind of do it properly. And Ishiwandaka sat the whole time and didn't talk. And that was the teaching, because they didn't, you know, do it properly. So it was a very good teaching for them. <laughs> yeah. They didn't figure it out for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe at the end they, yeah. Yeah, like the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, when you know they are worthy recipients, yeah, so in other words, you have to examine the students. Yeah, before you teach them, you have to, to examine them. You don't just teach Joe Blow. Because if somebody's coming in with a wrong motivation, yeah, maybe you have somebody who wants to listen to a Buddhist teaching, they're, they're from another religion, so they come to listen so that they can pick holes at it, so when they go proselytizing their religion, yeah, so you don't want to teach that kind of person, okay? Um, so you have, and you know, especially if you're giving higher teachings, you have to see that the people are qualified, you know. You don't just start teaching emptiness to anybody, you, you know, it has to be somebody who can understand it. Okay, so um, when you know they are worthy uh, recipients, then, uh, then as an exception, you can teach even if they haven't asked. So then you may just teach informally and, you know, sitting around the kitchen table or something like that. Yeah. But normally people really need to ask and they need to listen properly.
Okay, so the, the, in many Dharma centers you have uh, a spiritual program coordinator who makes the program and then advertises it and then the people think that this is a consumer activity and that they go and they pay, so I'm the consumer, this one's the one who's fulfilling my need. So that's, you know, that's not the right kind of attitude to have when you go listen to teaching, you know. I, I paid my registration fee, so, you know, what's the teaching here? Yeah. Teaching better be a good one, better be interesting. Yeah. So that's actually why the when the program coordinator, you know, is planning the program, they should be the one that respectfully requests the teacher. And then at the beginning of the teacher teaching, you know how last last week you offered the mandala? Then that's a request for teaching. Yeah, you offer the universe and everything beautiful in it. The whole audience is singing, you know, is chanting. And hopefully they're thinking about what they're chanting and, you know, I'm offering the whole universe and everything in it out of veneration and respect for the teacher and the teaching, you know. And, and so, you know, they're, all, they're requesting at that time. Because the second verse of the mandala offering is requesting teachings. And then you, at the end you offer the mandala again as a symbol of, you know, I've received something and, you know, that's more valuable than the whole universe. So I'm offering the universe as a token of it. As a teacher, to um, avoid, um, I don't know, any negative karma by have not choosing your disciples carefully. Like I, like one teacher of mine, like um, Rinpoche, he always assigns the um, six like cognitions um, equally. What kind of teaching he is giving? Mm -hmm. I want maybe that's to get sure that the students have the right motivation, even if they're down properly and right all the. the so you said he goes through the six recognitions always, always. always yeah as a way of preparing the students yeah, so that they can hear yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah to make to help the students prepare their own minds mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. would you have a room full of people with mixed motivations like people that are very sincere but some people that might be different then you teach to the sincere ones and you try and add something that the other ones may may understand. If you watch His Holiness, the way he teaches, teaches, it's amazing. He will weave in and out from something that's very simple and then go into like incredible, you know, something about the nature of reality and then come out to something simple and then go into bodhicitta. I, I mean, so everybody gets something out of the teaching. Okay, so we've gone long over time. <laughs> this time, usually things won't last so long. Yeah? The six recognitions, did you have to, I'm not sure if I used to, is the fifth, sixth one from a 
I don't know where the sixth one came from. It just said the first five came from that sutra. Yeah. So, but the sixth one's really beautiful. It's kind of like the dedication and the, the core of the whole thing. And the sixth one, you know, wanting the teachings to exist forever, like I said, it reminds us that we have responsibility for this and that the teaching isn't just about me and my Dharma practice. Yeah? Because so often we go to teachings, you know, with this mind of, you know, the teacher serving me so I can have a good Dharma practice. Yeah? Instead of having a big mind. Yeah? You said that before you teach, you contemplate four things. Yeah. Would you be willing to share those? Sure. Okay. I made them up. So, okay. So, first thing, um, I usually finish visualize one, two, three, and then I, I, you know, I kind of make the aspiration, may everything I say be correct. May I not say anything that's mistaken. Because... Number one important thing is that I don't distort the Dharma. Okay. Then second thing, may I say what this audience needs to hear. Yeah. So may the teaching be something applicable to this particular audience. Then the third one is may I express it articulately and may they understand it correctly. So both things, from the side of me expressing, from the side of their understanding. And then fourth is, may we all have the correct motivation for sharing the Dharma tonight. Yeah. And then I imagine Manjushri dissolving into me, doing the self-generation, saying the mantra. So that's what I do. And before I do that, I do the uh, Akasamara Shasadara Samara mantra and the Taitogatakatiparagatiparasamgati Bodhisattva. That mantra too. Okay. Yeah? Did you say uh, that when you request a teaching, you have to request three times? Did you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, do you know why? Why is this three times? Because um, when it, whenever you do something important, you, you have to show your sincerity by asking more than once. So, you know, whenever people re request precepts or request something or, you know, you have to show you're sincere, that it's not just an idea that popped into your head and, yeah, you know, like, let's do this and the next day you forget about it. Yeah, yeah, that's why I ask people to do that, because they have to think about it. Yeah, and they have to say something, not just show up. Yeah. Oh, I'm here. Mm -hmm. Now you do something for me. No, that's not the right attitude. Okay. Focus on what you're supposed to be thinking when you do the mandala offering. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path 
and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lausanne's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. This merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzing so generously, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West, for 